From DLA Piper, this is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper's Richard Hands is joined by former bank regulator and chief compliance officer Michael Silva to discuss the regulatory and supervisory fallout from recent banking failures. Hello, everyone. I'm Rich Hands. I serve as the managing partner for vertical operations and the global co-chair of the financial services sector here at DLA Piper. And welcome to the latest edition of our DLA Piper Beyond the Curve podcast. And today we're taking a look at some of the regulatory and supervisory fallout from the banking crisis earlier this spring, thinking about the emerging trends and new risks that apply to clients across the banking and financial services sector. As we know, there were runs on several regional banks earlier this year, leading to intervention by the FDIC. What precipitated those runs and the need for intervention has been much discussed. Of particular concern to many was what some saw as the supervisory failures. Did the regulators and bank supervisors simply miss the weaknesses in each of the banks? And did the response go perhaps above and beyond what was needed? Our discussion today will focus not only on the specifics, what happened, but really where we are today and what we might expect or be concerned about going forward. To help us understand all of that, we're turning to one of the smartest and most experienced individuals I know, someone who has spent the better part of the last 30 years in the center of the banking world, seeing it from both the supervisory and bank compliance sides, Michael Silva. Mike has over 30 years of experience as a bank regulator, chief compliance officer, law firm partner, and board member. Mike currently serves as the chair of the board audit and compliance committee of Column NA, the only nationally chartered bank built to enable developers to create financial products. Prior to joining Column, Mike served for four years as the America's chief compliance officer for UBS for two years before that as a partner in the financial services regulatory practice of our global law firm, DLA Piper, and before that, three years as the global regulatory affairs and compliance leader of GE Capital. Prior to joining GE, Mike spent 21 years with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He served in a variety of roles there, including as the lead international lawyer, technical advisor to the Central Bank of Iraq after the coalition invasion, chief of staff to Tim Geithner during the financial crisis, and the lead Fed supervisory officer for Goldman Sachs. Mike is a graduate of Columbia Law School, the Harvard Business School Advanced Management Program, and the United States Naval Academy. Prior to beginning his financial services career, Mike served in the Navy for six years as an F-14A Tomcat radar intercept officer with Fighter Squadron 142, the Ghost Riders, and is a graduate of the Navy Fighter Weapons School, known as Top Gun. Welcome, Mike. Glad to have you here. Thank you very much, Rick. Delighted to be here. So, Mike, you bring the unique perspective of having both that long career at the Fed including as a senior supervisory officer for a domestic, systemically important financial institution and 10 years in the private sector. What are we, and perhaps more importantly, what are the banks and financial services firms to take away from the events of the last spring from that regulatory or supervisory perspective or viewpoint? 
Well, I'd say a number of things. First and foremost, regulators aren't perfect. And in its after-action report, I think the Fed did a pretty good job of taking ownership of the fact that it got behind the curve on Silicon Valley. Now, there's a number of reasons that happened. The bank was in the middle of transitioning to a different category of supervision. It had grown tremendously in just three years. It tripled its size. And there were some other factors. The regulators didn't act as fast as they should have and recognize that they should have acted. There's a great quote from Ernest Hemingway in The Sun Also Rises, and I think he took it from Mark Twain, where a character is asked about how they went bankrupt, and the reply was gradually and then suddenly. And for bank failures, it's often a very sudden thing, and it really does speak to the true fragility of the banking system, doesn't it? These banks do not fail necessarily in isolation, but there's this ripple effect. Can you speak a little to that, Mike? You're exactly right. I think there's two things to keep in mind. One, everything's happening so much faster in the world, and that includes circumstances arising that can result in a bank becoming wobbly, is the term I use. And then second, the ripples that can propagate from that. SVB was wobbly for less than 24 hours, I would say, before the FDIC made it very clear that it was going to fully protect all depositors, insured and uninsured. It invoked its emergency authority to insure deposits over above the normal amount. But despite that, the ripples generated from the SVP situation eventually had negative repercussions for three domestic banks and one very large international bank. And that's hard to understand if you look at it from a purely rational point of view, because the circumstances that existed at SVP did not necessarily exist at those other institutions. So there's this attitude of fear that people need to understand is part of our banking environment. And you use the word fragile. That's right. Fragility, I think, conveys certain negative connotation. I don't know in the 21st century that it's possible to have a banking system that is not a bit so interconnected that the failure of one part has implications for other parts pretty quickly. Another thing that financial leaders have to deeply internalize is that stuff can happen very fast and the repercussions can travel very fast. And that's yet another reason why you can't just try to satisfy the regulators. You need to, on your own, be constantly scanning the horizon, very proactively looking for risk very real time and be very deft and adroit at responding to them and understanding you own the risk. You and I both graduated from the Naval Academy together mm -hmm. and you want to operate nuclear attack submarines. I flew off of carriers. And in both those environments, we were very rigorously examined, your boat and your submarine and my squadron, prior to deployment, very rigorously examined, just as banks are. But once we were underway and once we were flying, we owned the risk 100%. And we deeply internalized that. And as a result, had very, very impressive safety records, considering how complicated the things we were doing was and what the consequences could have been a failure. And you can look in the manufacturing sector. You can look at hospitals. You can look at a number of different sectors where safety first is very culturally ingrained. And I think that's something we need to find a way to do more of in the financial system. Your reference to our time in the service resonated in this regard for me. All of these banks, much like we in the service, had procedures and plans when something went wrong. But it was all about understanding 
how to implement those plans too. Banks have resolution plans. Those are very nice, but they're not necessarily going to save a bank, are they? If in fact, the bank and its management are not on top of everything. That's correct. Resolution plans are not designed to save a bank. They're designed to allow a bank, particularly the large ones, to fail in a way that minimizes damage to others and minimizes contagion effect. Now, I think one of the big lessons from SVB, which was a relatively small bank compared to some of our largest banks, is that if one of our largest banks ever actually gets in a position where it needs to execute its resolution plan, just that fact is going to have major implications for the rest of the banking system. And the regulators are going to have to act very quickly to give the whole system confidence as they try to execute the resolution plan for one particular bank as they start to sell it off and Resolution plans are incredibly important, preparing them especially because they help us understand the banks, how they're constructed, what their weaknesses are. We learn a lot from resolution plans, but I think we need to be very careful about believing that in a real-world crisis, it may not be practical to actually try to execute one of those things because of not just ripples, but tidal waves that would be sent out for the rest of the system. I get it. The Congress and regulators have been discussing since the spring, imposing perhaps more oversight and extending to the regional and mid-tier banks, greater capital requirements and perhaps other regulatory overlay. Does that address the issues raised by last spring's distress? I would say not completely. Those are the classic elements of prudential supervision, capital, liquidity, resilience, and those are absolutely foundational pillars and there have to be rigorous requirements there and perhaps they need to even be increased. I think you have to be careful of when you do that, you may actually end up concentrating the banking system more than you intend because it becomes more expensive to be a bank. So prudential supervision and potentially more of classical prudential supervision may very well be warranted here, but I personally feel that it's time to start examining banks in addition to capital and liquidity and third-party risk management. It's time to start on at least a discovery basis, examining them for culture. Bank leaderships need to understand at a deep level that banks are businesses second and nuclear reactors first. The reactors that power the economy in a obviously very important way. They power people's financial hopes and dreams, their retirement, their college savings. But they have to be run with immense care and precision because if they melt down, as we saw in 2008 in a very dramatic way, and to a lesser extent recently with SVP, but still, I think, very indicative way, if these things melt down, the implications for society are enormous. In 2008, we took over 10 years to recover from that. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands people lost their homes. It was just devastating. And when you look back at it, some of the fundamental causes of it were very senior financial leaders all piling into the same trade, which I think if they had adequately internalized their responsibilities with respect to safety and culture, the way you did when you were standing watching your submarine, the way I did when I was operating my aircraft, and the way many others should do, I don't know that that would have happened. And now, this is a pretty radical proposal, but I think it's time 
to, at least on an informal basis, start gathering culture information on these institutions and conducting horizontal culture exams. The New York Fed actually had a culture initiative going on for a while now. You can see it on their website. They've held a number of conferences, probably going on six, seven years now. They put out a lot of very interesting publications, and they've learned a lot about the importance of culture. And I think it may be time to start examining for culture. That will get the bank's attention. Once regulators start actually looking at something, bank leaders pay a lot more attention to it. You get what you measure, right? Very good. Yep. I think that's certainly the case. So one of the surprises, we're going to shift here a little bit, but one of the surprises of the U.S. response to the failures in the spring was to guarantee 100% of the deposits rather than simply up to the $250,000 statutory guarantee. Some say that was the result of the unique model of those banks and the economic moment we found ourselves in. But does that now create a moral hazard of sorts going forward? I mean, how do we say no the next time? And does that matter? Well, I think you're right that it was caused in part by the unique circumstances of SVP. It happened to have a very unusual concentration of very high-value deposits that would ordinarily be uninsured because of its business model, which was to attract a bunch of venture capital. So a very large percent of, much larger than would ordinarily be the case for most banks, of its deposits exceeded the insured threshold. And Literally, the FDIC, I would say, personally, had no choice but to invoke its emergency authority to ensure all deposits regardless of amount because, as we said, the ripples that thing was generating were already having very significant consequences. Now, does that make it more likely in the future that the FDIC has built up depositor expectation that anytime things begin to even go slightly sideways, the FDIC is going to come in? and ensure all deposits. I'm afraid it probably does. But for the reasons I said before, I don't know that there's a way to avoid that at this point. The banks are so interconnected and things happen so fast and fear travels so fast. It's probably the case that if a bank of any significant size begins to wobble, as I say, that the FDIC has now put itself in a position where there's most likely a pretty firm expectation that it's going to apply unlimited foam to the runway, as we say in regulatory parlance. <laughs> That's going to become a very expensive issue, though, I think, going forward. Well, it definitely could. It all depends. Now, fortunately, the FDIC isn't going to end up having to pay out on all those deposits because it did calm things down. It did get things resolved. And those costs for deposits it is going to have to cover are going to get passed back to the financial industry. But that cost ultimately gets passed on to consumers as well. So yes, I don't mean to disagree with your point, but I would say the faster the FDIC acts, the less likely it is to have to actually cover deposits. Once it shows up, it says, okay, the FDIC's arrived. We're here. Everybody calm down. Guess what tends to happen? People tend to calm down. Setting aside the management of any of these banks, do you have concerns going forward regarding prudential supervision in the U.S.? Listen, I think the scope and quality and effectiveness of prudential supervision has improved very significantly since 2008. I think it's absolutely critical that we continue it in its current form because to some degree, are we fighting the last war? Yes, there's a little bit of truth to that. But guess what? You do have to fight the last war to prevent a repeat of the last war. So that does mean examining for all the things we're currently examining in a prudential way. 
My concern is going forward. I don't know that prudential supervision in a world that moves as fast as the 21st century does and produces as many unanticipated circumstances as we see now, that prudential supervision is going to be enough. It'll certainly reduce the number of failures, but I think we can do better if we add, again, I know this is controversial, but I think it's really worth considering, a cultural aspect here. Let's begin to work culture into the supervisory process in some way, because I think that that's ultimately your culture in my view, I've been exposed to, in my career from both sides of the table, I've been exposed basically to certainly the largest banks and most of the largest regional banks, and you've had tremendous exposure. It's all about tone at the top. You can have all the rules and regulations you want, but it's all about the tone that's coming down from the top. It's about the culture of the place. And you and I both know, having worked with many different financial institutions, they all have different cultures. And if you look at their history, they have different degrees of success in terms of how well they have weathered various storms, right? And there's some that have weathered much better than others. And I think that comes down to culture. So that's my concern about prudential supervision going forward is that we need to take it one more step. I guess that raises a question, though, how you measure or assess culture. And are the regulators the best individuals or organizations to, in fact, measure that culture? That's an outstanding question. And I totally admit that culture is a very difficult thing to examine for. As I sit here right now, I don't know exactly how to do it. That's why I would recommend, obviously, starting with horizontal exams, where we try to sort this out, and it would probably take a while. And it may be that culture never becomes a formal exam rating, and rather just something that the regulators on an informal basis come through and look at. But I guarantee even that will have an impact on the focus that firms place on culture. You and I, again, going back to our Navy days, one of the things we were assessed on was the command environment, right? In other words, what's the morale? What's the tone at the top? And that was a subjective judgment. Now, in the military, you can make those. It's not so easy to do that in the private sector, obviously. But I don't know how we do it, but I do think it's time to start trying to do it and figure it out. Well, how do we assess the culture within the prudential supervisors themselves. And that's an issue too here, I think, right? I mean, there were certain failures we saw in the spring by the prudential supervisors to identify certain issues or at least react to certain facts soon enough. How do we make sure that they have the right culture, the right level of thoughtfulness and the like to assess the culture of a bank? That's a very fair question, a very understandable one. And again, I'm the first one to say that the regulators were behind the curve here. They issued a very thoughtful report in April about that. And part of what they talked about was their cultural failings for different reasons. I would say fundamentally related to changes in philosophy resulting from changes in administration. Regulators had some of the more junior and mid-level ones had, according to the report, become a little bit hesitant about acting aggressively with respect to deficiencies and pushing for faster resolutions. And that's not great. So you're exactly right. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. And the regulators might even be the first ones to tell you that, which is that their culture is critical as well. And I think 
they took that away from the Silicon Valley situation and that they are trying to focus on it. And perhaps and looking at it internally, that'll help them think about how to look at it externally at the banks. That might, in fact, be the best kind of supervisory reform, right? When they themselves are looking at themselves and how they operate and how they bring their oversight to bear. It'll be interesting to see. Mike, are we out of the woods? Where do you see things going over the next, say, six to 12 months? Well, I think we are out of the woods with respect to the SVB situation. I think the ripples that we're going to play out from that have played out. However, I have to say, going forward, I don't know that there's ever been a time when I've seen as many different, let's say, risk vectors in the world that any one of which could potentially jar the financial system in a way that wobbles. You know, we've got a lot of geopolitical tension out there, right? Especially with respect to right now China. And at the same time, we've got increasing I'm going to say political polarization in our own country that makes it difficult for us to do difficult things and make difficult judgments like about bank supervision. There's a lot of possible risk vectors out there that I worry it's inevitable. There's going to be some sort of event that once again causes some dislocation in the financial system. And you know what? That probably goes without saying, right? As long as you have a financial system, you're going to have financial crisis. It's all about magnitude and intervals. And I think with a more focus on culture, we might be able to reduce both of those things. Mm. Well, I will certainly agree with you on the positive impact good culture can have on any institution. I think you're exactly right. Mike, I could not appreciate more your thoughts and insights today. They are, as we expected, I think, valuable and instructive. And we'll see how things play out in the coming year with all of those vectors that you mentioned and see where they're going. And folks, I thank everybody for joining us today and listening to this conversation with Mike Silva. We appreciate you joining us. And in the meantime, we will continue to update the DLA Piper website with the latest on business, regulatory, and litigation consequences of the fallout from the bank crisis earlier this year. And thanks again to everyone for joining us. And thank you again, Mike, for being here with us. My pleasure, Rich. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve podcast. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast. 